0: Hi everyone, I'm Andy, and this is UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. Today's episode is going to be about the Loch Ness Monster. Is it real? Is it not? That is the question. Something known as Springhill Jack. What exactly was it? The Devil's Footprints. Strange footprints that were seen in Devon, England, after heavy snowfall one night. And, last but not least the WOW signal from outer space, an intriguing radio signal that Earth received back in the 1970s. The last segment will contain a little bit of news that broke only about four days ago from the time of writing. Thanks again to all my listeners for giving me their time, especially my American listeners who have no doubt been hearing lots and lots and lots about the presidential election recently. It has filled up the news and normal TV channels over here, so I'll bet it has been extreme over there. Anyway, without further ado, let's get on with this episode. First up, the Loch Ness Monster. For those that don't know, and I'm sure there are not a lot of people who have not heard about it, the Loch Ness Monster is a mystical animal which is said to live in Loch Ness way up in the Great Glen in Scotland. Loch Ness itself is a large, deep freshwater loch in the Scottish Highlands. Approximately 23 miles long, which is almost the same distance from England to France, from Dover, 1.7 miles wide and nearly 744.6 feet deep, it is said that you could fit the entire human race into it and still have a little bit of room. The scenery around the loch, the mountains, the Caledonian Canal at one end, and of course the famous Urquhart Castle, make Loch Ness one of the most scenic lochs in Scotland, and I well recommend a visit. But of course, the loch is famous for something else the Loch Ness Monster, also known as Nessie. Nessie is a cryptid in cryptozoology and Scottish folklore. It is described as large, long-necked, and with one or more humps protruding from the water. Popular interest and belief in the creature has varied since it was brought to worldwide attention in 1933. Evidence of its existence is anecdotal, with a number of disputed sonar readings and photographs. The best-known article that first attracted great deal of attention about the creature was published in May 1933, in the Inverness Courier. It was about a large beast or whale-like fish. The article by Alex Campbell, who worked on the lock as a water bailiff, as well as being a part-time journalist, talked about a sighting by Aldi McKay of an enormous creature with the body of a whale rolling in the water on the lock while she and her husband were driving along the a82 Trunk Road on the 15th of April 1933. It was Campbell who first applied the word monster in his article titled Strange Spectacle in Loch Ness. The article says The creature disported itself, rolling around and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, It disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realised that here was no ordinary denizen of the depths, because, apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. According to an article from 2013, Mackay said that she yelled, Stop the beast! when viewing the spectacle. In the 1980s, a naturalist interviewed Al Aldi Mackay and she admitted to knowing that there had been oral tradition of a beast in the loch well before her claimed sighting. Alex Campbell's 1933 article also stated that Loch Ness has for generations been credited with being the home of a fearsome-looking monster. So, with that in mind, when did these tales of a huge creature in Loch Ness begin? Well, the answer to that question is 565 AD. According to Adaman, writing about a century after the events described, an Irish monk, St Columba, was staying in the land of the Pict, with his companions when he encountered local residents burying a man by the river Ness. They explained that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast that mauled him and dragged him under water. They tried to rescue him in a boat, but he was killed. Columbus sent a follower, Nugrini Mokumin, I hope I pronounced that correctly, to swim across the river. The beast approached him with an awful roar, but Columba made the sign of the cross and said, Go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. The creature stopped as if it had been pulled back with ropes, and it fled. And Columba's men and the Picts gave thanks for what they perceived as a miracle. Of course, stories of the creature persisted as more and more sightings of Nessie occurred. They still do. But something big happened in the early 20th century. That was the mass production of photographic and film cameras. Like I said, the stories went on, but people wanted more tangible proof now. And the hope was that the camera would provide it. Lots of us will have seen the famous black-and-white photo of what looked like a long-necked creature sticking its head out of the water, dating from 1934. It is up on the Facebook group and the Twitter and Instagram too, by the way, if you want to have a look. Belief in Nessie hit the heights as this was the tangible proof that people had been waiting for. The photograph was examined and scientists were baffled. Could the question of the Loch Ness monster finally be answered? Could it actually be real? It was believed that photograph really was of the mystical creature, as for nigh on 60 years, people could not debunk it. Eventually, however, that photograph was proved to be a fake. In the mid-1990s, a year after the major Hollywood film, Loch Ness, had been released in cinemas, it was of a plastic toy stuck to a toy submarine. Only a few years after the surgeon's photo, as it was known, was taken and published around the world, an object was filmed moving in the lock, and many believed this to be even more tangible evidence of the existence of Nessie. How could you fool a film camera? More sightings followed, including in 1943 during World War II, from a commander of a Navy boat in the lock. Details only emerged in 1969 when Lieutenant Commander Francis Russell Flint wrote a letter to the Daily Telegraph. Flint said he was in charge of a Navy motor launch travelling from Leith to Swansea in Wales with about 20 men on board. Near Fort Augustus, travelling at about 25 knots, there was the most terrific jolt, he said. Everybody was knocked back, and then we looked forward, and there it was. A very large animal form disappeared in a flurry of water. It was definitely a living creature, not debris or anything like that. Flint, who died in 1977, talked about the incident for years said family members. He told author and broadcaster Nicholas Witchell that he had signalled the Admiralty. Regret to inform your lordships damage to starboard bow following collision with the Loch Ness Monster, proceeding at reduced speed to Fort Augustus. Flint said the Navy were not impressed with his signal. He got a bit of a blast when he returned to base. However, Flint was an official war artist and painted a picture of the Loch Ness incident, which went on display at a gallery in Leeds. It is not known where the picture is currently. Even more actual evidence was apparently accidentally destroyed in 1978, when a rented pleasure boat suffered a violent collision with an unknown object in the loch. One of the passengers on the rented boat, an elderly man, was so frightened by the collision with an unseen object that he suffered a heart attack and died shortly thereafter, making the unfortunate boater perhaps the only human fatality claimed by an encounter with the Loch Ness Monster since the man just before St. Columba's arrival way back in the 6th century. The 1978 collision could have yielded incontrovertible evidence that the Loch Ness Monster exists because the collision is said to have wounded the creature which left large shards of its flesh on the boat's propeller shaft. Stanley Roberts, now 85, who owned the rental boat back in 1978, described the remnants of the monster that was attached to the underside of his boat as found flesh and black skin an inch thick along the prop shaft. But before he knew what had happened, workers who were repairing the damaged boat simply tossed the flesh into the water. The workers chiselled the flesh away and threw it into the Caledonian Canal, Roberts recalled in an interview with the Scotland Now news site. It would have proved that Nessie was here. Had the organic material been preserved, given DNA-reading techniques available with today's technology, scientists would likely have been able to determine exactly what hit the boat, and as a result, finally learned what the fabled Loch Ness Monster actually is. People ask, why hasn't Nessie been found? According to Gary Campbell, the official keeper of the Loch Ness Monster sightings, the lock is too big and too dark. If you dive down just a few feet and you, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. Technology needed to scan the entire lock to search for the creature that does not want to be found would be very expensive and you'd need lots of it again as the lock is so large. The lock is ideal for hiding a large monster. That being said, sonar sweeps have taken place in Loch Ness and once in a while a scan will return something that raises questions. In 1954, sonar readings were taken by the fishing boat Rival 3. Its crew noted a large object keeping pace with the vessel at a depth of 146 metres, which is 479 feet. It was detected for 800 metres, 202,600 feet, before contact was lost and regained. Previous sonar attempts were inconclusive or negative. Again, in 1990, a small pleasure boat fitted with equipment received a sonar image of a creature that looked like a saw, following the boat for a few metres again before contact was lost. Videos, photographs and stories continue to come in, but they still couldn't provide a definite yes or no to the big question. Then, on the 19th of April, 2014, big technology did catch something. It was reported that a satellite image used by Apple Maps showed what appeared to be a large creature just below the surface at the far north of the lock. The image appeared about 90 feet in length. No decent explanation has come out to try to debunk the picture. So far, seven sightings have been recorded in 2020 alone. So is Nessie real or is she not? We may never know for sure, but one thing that we do know is that interest in her will never wane. Personally, I think she is down there somewhere in that deep, dark lock. But what do you think? Is she real or just a figment of collective imagination? I'd really like to know what you think about the existence of Nessie or any other mysterious water creatures. Contact details will come up at the end of the episode, so please keep an ear out for those. Now onto something a little lesser known than the Loch Ness Monster, and that is the legend of the Victorian era boogeyman with the incredible jumping ability, Spring-Heeled Jack. Spring-Heeled Jack is an entity in English folklore from the Victorian era who terrorised Britons for nearly 70 years. The first sightings of Springhill Jack came in London in 1837. The last reported sighting was made 116 years ago in Liverpool in 1904. In October 1837, a girl called Mary Stevens was walking to Lavender Hill in South London, where she was working as a servant. She had just visited her parents in nearby Battersea when on her way through Clapham Common, a strange figure leapt at her from a dark alley. After immobilising her with a tight grip of his arms, he began to kiss her on the face, while ripping her clothes and touching her flesh with his claws, which were, according to her deposition, cold and clammy as those of a corpse. In the panic, the girl screamed, making the attacker quickly flee from the scene. The commotion brought several residents who immediately launched a search for the aggressor, but he could not be found. It was reported that only the next day Spring-Heeled Jack is said to have chosen a very different victim, quite near to Miss Mary Stevens' home. Inaugurating a method that would later appear in reports, he jumped into the path of a passing carriage, causing the driver to lose control and crash and injure himself severely. Witnesses report that he escaped by jumping over a nine-foot-tall wall while cackling with a high-pitched ringing laughter. Soon after, as the news spread of this jumping villain, the press began to give him his name, Spring-Heeled Jack. In January 1839, the Rumpus gained wider credibility when the Times newspaper reported on a letter read out by the Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan, which claimed some individuals have laid wager that a mischievous and foolhardy companion does not take upon the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three disguises, a ghost, a bear and a devil the unmanly villain, has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. The following month brought perhaps the definitive encounter when Jane Alsop, a teenager from London's East End, heard what she thought was a policeman crying from the street, For God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Spring Hill Jack here in the lane. When she opened the front door and handed the cloaked figure a candle, he revealed his full monstrosity with, according to the times, eyes that resemble red balls of fire, a helmet of some sort and a costume which appeared to fit him very tight and seemed to resemble white oilskin. skin. This ghastly apparition vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flames from his mouth and clawed her tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were made of metallic substance. Only nine days later, another attack. 18-year-old Lucy Scales and her sister were making their way home after paying a visit to their brother. Scales stated to the police that as she and her sister were walking along Green Dragon Alley, They saw someone standing in the passage. She was walking in front of her sister, and as she approached the person who was wearing a cloak, he spurted a quantity of blue flame right in her face. She lost her sight there and then, and with a shock, she dropped to the ground instantly. She began having violent fits. Her brother heard loud screams of one of his sisters shortly after they had left the house. He ran out to investigate. He found his sister Lucy on the ground in the Green Dragon Lane having a fit, while their other sister was trying to support her. They took Lucy home. That is where the brother learned what had happened. She described the assailant as being tall, thin, and of gentlemanly appearance, covered in a large cloak and carrying a small bullseye lantern, which is usually used by the police. He didn't lay hands on them, but he walked away very quickly. Several people were arrested, but eventually all were let go. This incident gained widespread notoriety so much so, that the Duke of Wellington formed patrols to attempt to reassure the public. Since that attack on Jane Allsop the legend of spring Hill Jack went viral and sightings then started to come in from all over the country over the following decades. After these incidents, spring Hill Jack became one of the most popular characters of the period. His alleged exploits were reported in the newspapers and became the subject of several penny dreadfuls and plays performed in the cheap theatres that abounded at the time. A penny dreadful was like a, a horror comic of the time, which obviously only costed one penny. The devil was even renamed spring Jack in some Punch and Judy shows as recounted by Henry Mayhew in his London Labour and the London Poor. This here is Satan. We might say the devil, but that ain't right, and general folks don't like such words. He is now commonly called Spring-Heeled Jack, or the Russian Bear. That's since the war. But even as his fame was growing, reports of Spring-Heeled Jack's appearances became less frequent, if more widespread. In 1843, however, a wave of sightings swept the country again. A report from Northamptonshire described him as the very image of the devil himself, with horns and eyes of flame, and in East Anglia, reports of attacks on drivers of mail coaches became common. Again, I have posted a picture to the Facebook group, Twitter and to the Instagram. In July 1847, a Spring Hill Jack investigation in Tainmouth, Devon, led to a Captain Finch being convicted of two charges of assault against women, during which he is said to have been disguised in a skin coat, which had the appearance of a bullock's hide, skullcap and horns and a mask. The legend was linked with the phenomenon known as the Devil's Footprints, which appeared in Devon in February 1855. Some have tried to explain what spring Jack may have really been. Of course, people say that it never happened, or it was just a madman, etc., etc., but one enduring explanation was the suggestion that spring Jack was indeed an alien. The helmet and costume were his spacesuit, and his powerful jumping ability could be evidence that he came from a planet with higher gravity than that of the Earth. Valentine Dial, a famous British actor, wrote in 1954 article for Everybody's Magazine It is significant that a high proportion of those who saw Springheel Jack were convinced that he was not of this world but either a spirit or a visitor from some distant planet. This suggestion was also agreed upon by Inman Race, a correspondent to the magazine. He contended that a being reared on a planet where gravity was far greater than on Earth would be able to leap colossal distances on this planet. I suggest that the alleged monster was a visitant from space who had been marooned here. It is a very interesting phenomenon, Springhill Jack, partly because similar phenomena have been reported in other parts of the world. As previously stated, that's a great link by the way, to the next part of the episode, something reported in Devonshire in 1855 that something is known as the devil's footprints. In midwinter, in Victorian England again, bipedal hoof tracks appeared overnight in the snow. The tracks went through fields, gardens, and was unimpeded by walls, rivers, or other barriers, natural or man-made. Was the devil to blame? On the night of the 8th, 9th of February 1855 and the following one or two nights around the Ex estuary in Devonshire, England, after a heavy snowfall, a series of hoof-like marks appeared in the snow. The snow had stopped at around midnight on the 9th of February, and nearly six hours later, at first light, people across the countryside and settlements between Topsham and Totnes, including towns of Limpstone, Tainmouth and Dawlish, they noticed strange tracks in the snow, meandering in an unbroken course over a distance of more than 160 kilometres, about 100 miles. In fact, they were reported in over 30 locations, houses, Rivers, haystacks and other obstacles were traversed over and the footprints could be seen on top of the snow-covered roofs and high walls, which lay in the footprints' path. The first report of the tracks appeared in the 17th of February edition of a local newspaper in the letter to its editor. Sir, Thursday night, the 8th of February, was marked by heavy fall of snow, followed by rain and a boisterous wind from the east, and in the morning frost. The return of daylight revealed the ramblings of some most busy and mysterious animal, endowed with the power of ubiquity, as its footprints were able to be seen in all sorts of unaccountable places, on top of houses, narrow walls, in gardens and courtyards, enclosed by high walls and palings, as well as in the open fields. The letter went on to describe the prints which appeared more like that of a biped than a quadruped. The steps are generally 8 inches in advance of each other, though in some cases 12 or 14, and are alternate-like steps of a man, and would be included between two parallel lines 6 inches apart. The superstitious go so far as to believe that they are the marks of Satan himself, and that great excitement has been produced among people of all classes, may be judged from the fact that the subject has been descanted on from the pulpit. The impressions of the foot closely resembled that of a donkey's shoe, and measured from an inch and a half, in some instances, two and a half inches across. Here and there it appeared as if cloven, but in the generality of the steps the shoe was continuous, and from the snow in the centre remaining entire, merely showing the outer crest of the foot. It must have been concave. Although the tone of the letter was jolly, it added the chilling detail that the creature seems to have advanced to the doors of several houses and then to have retraced its steps. The rector of Clist St George, the Reverend H. T. Ellicum, who later became one of the principal investigators, recorded a further disturbing facet. It was as if the snow had been branded with a hot iron through to the ground, which was everywhere visible, though the snow in the middle part did not appear to be touched. Perhaps, inevitably, dark suspicions of the devil's hand were being entertained. Some people, however, have put this down to hopping mice. Mike Dash suggested that at least some of the prints, including some of those found on rooftops, could have been made by hopping rodents, such as wood mice. The print left behind after a mouse leaps resembles that of a cloven animal, due to the motions of its limbs when it jumps. Dash stated that the theory that the Devon prints were made by rodents was originally proposed as long ago as March 1855 in the Illustrated London News. Some have even placed the blame on escaped kangaroos from a private zoo owned by Mr Fish at Sidmouth. Of course, kangaroos are mostly bipedal, but the tracks bore no resemblance in size or shape to those of a kangaroo. There are also claims that a worker at Devonport Dockyard had accidentally released an experimental balloon, part of a classified project, and that its chain had created the tracks as it trailed and bumped along the ground. But this does not account for the uniformity of the prints and the prevailing winds would not have pushed the balloon along the correct path either. Tracks like these have been reported all over the world for centuries now. Ralph of Coggleshall, a chronicler who lived in the 13th century, recorded the appearance of strange hoofprints in the earth after lightning storm on the 19th of January 1205. Polar explorer Captain Sir James Clark Ross also recorded that a survey party which landed on Kogulan Island near the South Pole in 1840 reported seeing tracks of an ass or a donkey despite there being no animals. The Illustrated Times reported also in 1855 that on a hill in Piaskova Gora In Galicia, which is now Poland, I hope I pronounced that all correctly, every year are to be seen in the snow the same footprints as those seen in Devonshire. As recently as 2009, newspapers in Europe reported marks in the shape of a cloven hoof found in a garden in Devon. So what do you think about the Devil's Footprints? Could that be linked in some way to Spring Hill Jack? They do seem to have some similarities. The high jumping ability being the big one. Let me know your thoughts on any of those stories, sightings, etc. Sending your email to me at ufosandotherparanormalstuff at gmail.com I'd really like to know what you think. Next up, the wow signal from outer space. And... Some breaking news. The whale signal from outer space is something that I have never heard of before. It was sent to me last week. The year, 1977. The location, Constellation Sagittarius, 2.5 degrees south of Chai Sagittarii, near the M55 globular cluster. In 1977, the Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope, searching space for broadcasts from extraterrestrial civilizations, picked up a very strong signal. Jerry R. Ehrman, an astronomer who was based at the OSU, discovered the anomaly a few days later while reviewing the recorded data. So impressed was he by the result that he circled the reading on the computer printout 6 capital E capital Q capital U capital J 5 and wrote wow exclamation mark on its side leading to the event's widely used name The signal sequence lasted for the full 72-second window during which the big ear was able to observe it, but it has not been detected since, despite attempts by other astronomers to try and find it again. Many hypotheses have been advanced on the origin of the emission, including natural and human-made sources, but none of them adequately explain the signal. Could it have been sent by an alien civilization? Although the whale signal had no detectable modulation, a technique used to transmit information over radio waves, it remains the strongest candidate for an alien transmission ever detected. The most significant thing, working through the long stretches of zeros, ones and twos that represent the background hiss of the cosmos, Ehrman was startled to see a sequence of score that climbed from six to E, all the way up to U, 30 points higher than the background hiss, before subsiding back down to 5, so the whole sequence read 6, E, Q, U, J, 5. To you and me, if this was plotted on a graph, it would resemble a spike in radio signal intensity that stands out from the background noise like a red flag against the white background. It was exactly what SETI, the search for extraterrestrial life, had been looking for. Without thinking, I wrote WOW, Ehrman recalls. It was the most significant thing we had seen. the frequency john krauss the director of the observatory gave a value of 1420.3556 megahertz in a 1994 summary written for carl sagan the famous american astronomer planetary scientist cosmologist astrophysicist astrobiologist author poet and science communicator. That is some CV. But Ehrman in 1998 gives a value of 1420.4556 give or take 0.005 megahertz with detailed explanation. This is 50 plus minus 5 kilohertz above the hydrogen line value, with no red or blue shift of 1420.4058 megahertz. If due to blue shift, it would correspond to the source moving about 10 kilometers a second, that's 6.2 miles per second, towards us. A heat map of the computer printout gives the spectrogram of the beam. The wow signal appears as a bright spot in the lower left. An explanation of the difference between Ehrman's values and Krauss's can be found in Ehrman's paper. An oscillator, which became the first local oscillator, was ordered for the frequency of 1450.3. Four zero five six megahertz. However, the university's purchasing department made a typographical error in the order and wrote one four five zero point five zero five six megahertz, i.e., a zero point one megahertz higher than desired. The software used in the experiment was then written to adjust for the error. When Ehrman computed the frequency of the whale signal, he took this error into account. Hypotheses on the signal's origin. There have been quite a few hypotheses on the origin of the famous whale signal, but none of them have received widespread acceptance. Ehrman has stated that we should have seen it again when we looked for it 50 times. Something suggests it was an Earth-sourced signal that simply got reflected off of a piece of space debris. However, later research showed that an Earth-borne signal would be very unlikely, given the requirements of a space-borne reflector being bound to certain unrealistic requirements to sufficiently explain the signal. Also, the 1420 MHz signal could not have originated from Earth as it is within a protected spectrum, a bandwidth reserved for astronomical purposes in which terrestrial transmitters are forbidden to transmit. In a 2012 podcast, scientific sceptic author Brian Dunning concluded that a transmission from deep space in the direction of Sagittarius as opposed to near-Earth origin remains the best technical explanation for the emission although there is no evidence to conclude that an alien intelligence was the source. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings me to the little bit of breaking news as I write this. The news is that according to various websites, a mysterious signal has been spotted in the Milky Way galaxy for the first time. Three new studies trace the burst to a bizarre magnetic star in a thousandth of a second on April twenty-eighth, 2020, a powerful burst of radio waves washed over Earth, lighting up radio telescopes in North America. Astronomers have now tracked down the signal and the results could reveal the long-sought cause of some of the most mysterious cosmic signals ever recorded. In three studies published this week, in the journal nature an international group of scientists identified the blast as a fast radio burst an extremely intense flash of radio waves that lasts no more than a few milliseconds telescopes have picked up such bursts before but always from outside of our galaxy the milky way Researchers have wondered for years what could cause these ephemeral but powerful blasts, with speculation ranging from exploding stars to alien technology. When I looked at the data for the first time, I froze and I was basically paralysed with excitement, a lead author of one of the studies said in a Monday press briefing. Now we know that at least one source is likely an exotic star called a magnetar, a type of young neutron star left over after a large star explodes that has an extremely powerful magnetic field. The proximity of this burst made it appear extremely bright. It is much brighter than any other radio object in space, by a very large margin. The burst had an energy about three times that emitted every second by the sun. Several teams of researchers examined the area where it arose and found the burst originated from a magnetar called SGR-1935 plus 2154. That is all very interesting and very scientific stuff. Of course it is more scientific than paranormal in many ways and it's too scientific for me, I'll tell you that. But I do wonder if some of these signals Earth is getting from other parts of space are indeed manufactured by alien beings. Can it really be that every single signal is simply coming to us from an asteroid, planet, star or comet? Are these signals being received and then told to the public that they are not being not from alien beings when they really are? The fact remains that, and without the conspiracy posed by the latter question, we may never really know 100% for sure exactly how these signals came to be sent in the first place. But, as with all things, the science and the search for alien life will most definitely continue. All very interesting stuff, I think. Thank you to everyone who wrote to me over the past few weeks. Please do keep your emails coming. Remember, the email address is UFOsAndOtherParanormalStuff at gmail.com The Twitter handle is at U and O-P-S That is at capital U, lowercase a-n-d, capital O-P-S. Facebook and Instagram. Just search UFOs and other paranormal stuff uh, for the group and the Instagram, uh, whatever you call it, on there. That is all from me this week. I look very much forward to speaking to you all very soon. Stay safe, stay healthy, and take care. Bye-bye.